Brian has a fantastic exhibition of strange comfort that opened at the Smithsonian National Museum of American Indian. And Karolin Kristof Bakaryev is artistic director of Documenta 13. It has been a wonderful experience to work with NMAI, particularly with Paul Chad Smith. And we are delighted that the director of NMAI, Kevin Gower, is here with us tonight. We also would like to remind you that our last After Hours 2009 event will be happening next Friday. Some of the tickets are still available on our website. And also when you leave, please do not forget to pick up our magazine so you can learn about our future programs. Before I introduce Brian and Carolyn, I'd like to thank particularly Jenny Leahy of the public programs and the staff of NMAI for making this program possible. We also would like to thank our members for their continued support and supporting our mission to bring art, artists, and audiences together at the Hijron Museum. If anyone would like to join the membership, please visit our joint and engage section of our website. Now, to the speakers this night. Brian Jungen was born in 1970 in Fort St. John, British Columbia, Canada, to a Canadian father and to Danazi First Nation mother. He studied visual art at the Emily Carr Institute of Art and Design, and he now lives in Vancouver. His work often explores his cultural identity, as well as the complex exchange of goods and ideas in our globalized world. Using mass-produced goods, Jungen creates sculptures that are simultaneously fake and authentic, playful and political, common and extraordinary. Crux, a mobile recently acquired by NMAI, is installed in the atrium. It is a perfect example, created with parts of suitcases and overturned rowboat. Jungen has been exhibited extensively in Canada and internationally in venues that include Tate Modern, the New Museum, Guangzhou Biennial, and Secession in Vienna. Now let's turn to Karolin Christoph Bakaryev, who is a writer and curator based in Rome, Turin, and New York. She's currently chief curator and also immediate director of the Castelli di Rivoli Museum of Contemporary Art, She's also the next artistic director of Documenta 13, which opens in June 2012 in Kassel, Germany. She was previously senior curator at PS1 in New York. In 2008, Carolyn was artistic director of the Biennale of Sydney, where Jungen's Crux was shown for the first time. I would also like to introduce Paul Chad Smith, who will say a few words about the exhibition that he has organized, Brian Jungen's Strange Comfort, and with whom it was such an amazing pleasure to work on this particular event. Paul has been at the NMAI since 2001, where he currently serves as associate curator. He's a leading authority on issues of Indian space and representation, his recent projects include the 2009 exhibition Fritz Shoulder, Indian, Not Indian, and he recently published a wonderful collection of 20 essays 
entitled Everything You Know About Indians is Wrong, which was reviewed in the current issue of October Freeze. Paul, may I ask you to say a few words about the exhibition? Thank you. My exhibition manager, Jennifer Miller, has a sign in her cubicle that says, if at first you succeed, try not to look astonished. So I'm going to spend the next few minutes talking about that rare and unsettling sensation of things going right. This is new territory for me. My specialty is failure, and I'm pretty good at it. I don't mean that I'm a failure or my curatorial projects are failures, but I like investigating why things don't work since they hardly ever do. But here we have a case of things working out, a situation that leaves me skeptical and a little confused. The show's called Strange Comfort from an interview where Brian Youngin talked about seeing white plastic chairs and Nike Air Jordans all over the world on lawns and feet, store windows, or sometimes in the trash. I thought, yeah, that could be a title. I had two possible titles I'd come up with, but neither were very good. The first was Brian Youngin now, with an exclamation point. The second was bigger than Jesus. <laughs> Fortunately, we all agreed the strange comfort was much better, and so thankfully I never had to pitch those two titles. We discovered at least two more layers of meaning than that quotation uh, from, from Ryan's interview. A strange comfort in knowing that for the first time, his fake totem poles and fake Indian masks would share space with historic Indian material in the same building. And while it would be news for Youngin to present his work at any native museum, choosing to work with NMAI was especially interesting, since years ago the NMAI declined to purchase prototype for new understanding number 10. That didn't go over too well in Canada. And we're sorry about that, really. Um, however, it felt right and unexpected right, although unexpected, perhaps even inevitable, that Brian would land here someday. Because those new masks and those old masks have a lot to say to each other, and NMAI is the place for that discussion. So we asked Brian, you want to do a show with us? And he said yes. And that's when the trouble really started. Every great once in a while, like almost never, the great mystery gives you a project that's a sure thing a nicely wrapped package with ribbons and bows where all the parts inside work and none require assembly. If you're a curator, here's what such a project might look like. An artist who's critically acclaimed, commercially successful, whose shows set attendance records at museums all over the world, and whose work manages to delight children of all ages and those not so easily amused, like for example, Kuatamak Medina and Homi Baba. When such a project falls into your lap, it feels like a winning lottery ticket for a while. But then it all starts looking like a conspiracy, because how can your little Indian museum compete with the Tate Modern? And if it falls short, who are they going to blame? Not Brian Young, and that's for sure. They're probably going to blame me. For a while, I had hopes our new director could be blamable. But when I timidly suggested we acquire the magnificent crux as seen from those who sleep on the surface of the earth under the night sky, which came with a pretty magnificent price tag, Kevin Gover didn't even blink. He said, sure, let's do it. So much for that guy. 
than Brian himself. Yeah, people said he was a humble, straight shooter and a complete professional, but perhaps, perhaps under the pressure of working with NMAI, maybe he would reveal previously undiscovered diva tendencies. But no luck there either. He loves Washington and has charmed the socks off the entire NMAI staff. He sits through tons of meetings. He does take a sweet time answering emails from curators, but you know, they all do that. Anyway, there was nothing to do but give up on the dream of failure and go for broke. So as insurance, I invited Carolyn Kristoff Gargiev to meet Brian on stage here at Hershorn. And that was even before she was named director of Documenta 13. So the perfect public program for what turned out to be a perfect exhibition. I last want to say there's nothing strange about this event taking place at Hershorn. For the past five years, this institution has been a reliable ally, a patient teacher, and thoughtful advisor to NMAI's contemporary art program. Thanks especially to the gaunt and not forgotten Olga Viso, Carrie Brower, and Milena Kalinowska, and so many others at HMSG. So it's time for the main event. Brian told me a few weeks ago that he was nervous about tonight. I asked him why. He said, because Carolyn is so brilliant and also that she might ask personal questions. Somebody, it might have been me, said it sounds like you're gonna have your work cut out for you and this could be like Frost Nixon. <laughs> Brian says, well in that case, which one of us is gonna be Frost and which one of us will be Nixon? I told him, sorry, do, but I think she's Frost and you are gonna be Nixon. Ladies and gentlemen, Carolyn Christopher Gargiev and Brian Youngin. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you know, you still might fail in the sense that this evening hasn't, gone, hasn't happened yet, so, so we don't know. Uh, we really don't know <laughs> what, what, what it will turn out to be. Uh, nonetheless, first of all, I, I wanted to, to uh, thank uh, the Hirshhorn for inviting us and me here to speak with Brian. It's a great honor to be here. And also, uh, Milena has carefully taken care of this public program uh, together with the staff of the um, museum next door of the American Indian. And therefore, I would like to thank everyone and also the new director here, Richard Koshalek, and my friend and colleague, Carrie Brower, whom I've known for long. And mostly, I would like to, first of all, acknowledge the original inhabitants of this land uh, that I think uh, are maybe the Piscatawai and maybe the Anacosti and the others who may have come through here in, in the past. So uh, that said, Brian, Caroline. I will ask many personal questions, <laughs> many personal questions. But uh, first, um, I'd like to say a few words and uh, tell you that I was quite intrigued by Paul Chatsmith's text that was sent to me by Paul uh, over the email some, some weeks ago uh, because it portrayed an international art world of biennales and dealers and collectors and money and all of this. And indeed, I think the title is something referring to money. Money changes everything. Yeah, which is uh, uh, interesting and surprising because the way that I've always worked with artists and, 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 
and been, for example, with, with Brian has been very far from that uh, uh, and far from those, those logics. Uh, and actually, the, the, the work that now is in the museum collection next door, uh, which is fantastic, you know, this mobile called um, Crux, as seen from those who sleep on the surface of the earth under the night sky, I would say passed through a very, very, very narrow crack in a door uh, to, to actually survive just the end of the exhibition there, because many works were made and then taken apart and simply thrown out, uh, which is something that I often do in exhibitions because I always work with a very small budget, even though I'm directing Documenta, but uh, maybe I'm directing Documenta because in these hard times, they, maybe we need to think in different ways about art and how it's made, produced, circulated, negotiated, and so on. Uh, so uh, there was no money to, to send the piece back to some other place uh, at the end of the show. And then it was pulled together thanks to Catriona uh, uh, Jeffries and, and I think others, and therefore it, it arrives here. But I'm saying this because I found it rather uh, different from the reality, and things always are very different from depending on the point of view that, that you're looking at them, which has to do with the work of Brian. So I've been interested in Brian's work since Janet Cardiff told me about his work, and that was around 2002. Therefore, it comes from an artist, another artist, whom I had just worked with at PS1 shortly before knowing your work through her. And I invited Brian to be part of an exhibition called The Moderns, i Moderni, at the Castello di Rivoli in Torino in 2003, mm -hmm. where we exhibited a series of these uh, works called Prototype for a New Understanding. Um, not each object, but the totality of them is Prototype for a New Understanding. Um, and that same year was the show of this, uh, was, the, was the Vienna Secession show, I think. Um, and the moderns was actually not at all about indigenous um, contemporary culture today, but it was exploring certain returns of modernist perspectives uh, in, in, not in, in classical modernist terms, but in uh, post-postmodernist terms in, in the sense of um, looking at forms of agency and how one can imagine forms of agency through, for example, um, the ways in which one can experiment formally, for instance. And that brought, it, brought an interesting juxtaposition with, for example, Jim Lambie's work or, or other artists who have done combinations of found and bought uh, materials. So it came out of something completely different from what now is the area within which Brian's work is being discussed, which I think is just as important, but simply different from the history that brought me to, to his work, uh, which you say sometimes has to do with the difference between being in Europe and working in Europe and being, for example, in America or in other post-colonial contexts where this issue is important. Yeah. Do you want to say something so I don't turn this into a lecture? <laughs> because I'm still on page yeah, sure. one, like page 20 of the introductory remarks. So 
say something. <laughs> well, this work, for instance, was made in Vancouver and in BC, where the references are much more stronger with, of course, what uh, is coming out of that area, the Northwest Coast um, motifs and artifacts and artwork. So I think living and working in that context was very influential to me. Um, however, when this work is shown in Europe, that references aren't there. So sometimes they can be, they're seen more as African, let's say. And my identity as an uh, indigenous person isn't known at all, for instance. But in, Not particularly focused on. No. But, but that's, in, in, and indeed one, one, for example, in coming to your work, I was thinking about um, many things, including minimalism and the use of what Trevor Smith writes about uh, integers and series and reinvesting with politics, what had lost that politics yeah. in, in terms of the relationship with some minimalist strategies. But also I think I was thinking, I was thinking at the time of the difference in relationship with the use of objects by artists, for example, of the 80s in the so-called age of simulation art, aka Alan McCollum or Heim Steinbach, and how uh, <clears throat> Heim <clears throat> would put things, new, new bought objects on a shelf mm -hmm. to uh, underline how we lived in this post-productive society that was only a society of simulacra, uh, where we could simply play with the, in a, in a kind of French philosophy way, with the parameters of articulation of these objects become signs. Well, you take them apart, cut them, put them together. So I would have been, at the time, thinking of what does it mean to intervene with them in that way and how broad within the development of the digital age the aspect of um, DJing had become and the agency within DJing as opposed to looking at DJing as an inability to make new music. That's the ideas that I had at the time. Not now. I think completely <laughs> differently, and it says nothing of documenta. Okay. Um, yeah, I so understand how what you, you mean. Feeling, what was your relationship to objects? Well, the artists you mentioned, Heim Steinbeck and minimalist artists from the 80s, were artists I was exposed to in art school. So I, I was rec uh, kind of in some sort of uh, uh, reference to that type of work in Felix Gonzalez Torres, for example. So using <clears throat> uh, mass-produced objects was something new to me that I kind of came out of, out of a history of drawing and painting. So making this work really for me wasn't about simply using the object as is. I wanted to kind of change it or you know, mess with it. So. Yeah, mess with it. Yeah. yeah. So in a way, like I like the, I like what you're saying. Tell people what this is, like the Nike Air Jordan shoes, and why Michael Jordan, and what it. Well, this work came out of um, uh, one summer I was in New York, and I was looking. I was at the, like I do in most cities, go go to the museums, and I was at the Museum of Natural History, and I was that place is very heavy, and I was uh, getting kind of overwhelmed by it looking at the objects and <clears throat> was feeling very frustrated that there's Native American artifacts in that museum. This was before 
places like NMAI existed. So I came out of there and wandered downtown and just happened to walk into a Nike Town store, which I'd never been into one before, so I was really kind of overwhelmed how the Nike Corporation was packaging and kind of almost canonizing their own products in these glass cases and these vitrines. So to me, that was really influential, and I wanted to use them somehow in some sort of sculptural way, but I'd never actually made anything before, so I really just, it was kind of just trial and error. But I wanted to use them, like you say, like kind of DJing in a way, I just wanted to use them to kind of like sample, and uh, you know, like sampling in a way, cutting them up and reusing them. But I really had no kind of background in this making objects. And uh, that same summer I was at the Banff Center in Alberta, so I took the opportunity to, to start taking them up. Yeah. Well, initially, initially I just thought of them as images. And I think maybe that's because I'm from went to art school in Vancouver as well, because I initially just thought of them as for, to use as photographs. Props to make photographs. Yeah. That's interesting. That's like Rodchenko um, spatial constructions. The first mobiles, more or less, of history mm. uh, were made to make the photographs, and then the sculpture was to be destroyed. There's only one left, I think, at MoMA, the original ones mm -hmm. that have been reconstructed. So that's interesting. That's again a minimalist thing. Mel Buckner made the sculptures to be photographed, mm -hmm. for example. The models. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then some... Well, I had a very long residency, so taking these apart <laughs> and then photographing them, that was like a couple of days. And I had six <laughs> more weeks to, to use up at the BAMP Center. So I started to try to sew them back together. and. Uh, I didn't want to disassemble them to the point where I was just cutting freely. I wanted to really just take them apart as they were made. So take apart the stitching and reuse the same stitching holes. I didn't want to use the machine at all. I just wanted to do it all by hand. So that really was the beginning of it. So they, they look like something photoshopped. They look like a digital photograph, but they're actually uh, substantial material. And that materialization of something that would be very, very easy to do on the computer is part of the meaning of the work. I, not at the time, I don't think. Well, this was in, like in 1998, and I, didn't, I don't use computers very much for my artwork, so. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So. so it's um, something very interesting that Candice Hopkins, uh, who might be here, wrote in her text is to, uh, was underlining the question of cutting and uh, as a technique. I mean, uh, for the techniques that artists use are important. They mean things. They have deep meanings. Mm -hmm. um, Julio Gonzalez welding and teaching Picasso to weld means something. And cutting is not welding. Cutting is very a violent gesture. And it's, uh, it's, it's very incisive in the sense of incisiveness, both literal and metaphorical. Mm -hmm. And you do cut a lot. Yeah. Cut. <laughs> cut, cut, cut. And well. there is one piece that I want to move forward to. I'm going to skip a lot of images and go to the cut house. Just skipping all this stuff. If I can get to it. And then we can go back. 
is a little ploy here. Ah, okay. So this was your first project done in, in the United States in a public space. It was in 2004 in San Francisco, mm. a CCA Cab Street project. And uh, you, you, you um, had a model made at a scale one to five of a house, arts and crafts house, mm. and then cut it up and put it back together in a way that it would turn into a library system or a system for storing books, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. again, it's the same procedure done with the Nike shoes, but with an architecture. In a way, I mean, this, In a way. this, was, a con this was a construction from like, a, you know, building materials. So it wasn't really like a, you know, ready-made object. But. but because a house is really big. So you made a miniature house and then you cut it up and then you made the... The, yeah, you, reco I, you reconfigured it. Uh, and a lot had to do with the environment there, lo the location, because I was reading a lot about Gordon Matta Clark, and I was interested in his um, position. Cutting. And, yeah. So. Gordon Matta Clark cut <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> old buildings. Yeah. And there's a revolutionary element in those cuts. There's a very strong impulse to. Uh, not to break something, but to expose. To expose, to sever, to take apart something that has been forcefully put together. Well, yeah, I think for this piece, I wanted to somehow. It started with I was at the California College of Arts and Crafts, and while I was on my residency there, the college had removed crafts from its title. So I wanted to kind of start investigating that and reading about the crafts and arts and crafts history of California and the kind of how that was imported from the UK. So that was really the basis of this piece. And then I kind of tied it into my interest with Matta Clark. So what well. is the interest in Matta Clark? What do you like about Matta Clark? I like that he you know, um, exposed the interiors. He cut things apart. He was in, interested in you know, uh, kind of a reverse architecture in a way. An architecture, he yeah. called it. An architecture. Mm. Anarchist architecture. Exactly. So cutting as an anarchist strategy? Well. And what does that mean for an intellectual or an artist? This. Uh oh, I said I wasn't going to go into those things. <laughs> this. But, but it's. This piece really was, it was not exactly, it was built to be, it wasn't built and then cut, it was built in quadrants and then put together. Right. So it was almost a reverse of that. But, um, but on the level of the project, it's cutting it. Yeah. yeah and recomposing it. Yeah. And this is something that was initially supposed to be a kind of temporary thing. And similar to Crux, it was saved and now exists but for me i think i want sorry i have kind of a lot of the things i work in i kind of like to just arrange things and leave a lot of things up to chance so um if i have an interest in an artist it's um 
it's not necessarily the whole body of work or their p exact position. I'm more interested in art than specific artists or artist body of work. Right. So. But when you cut something apart and recompose it, it's different from making a collage. And it's different from making an assemblage. It's a different procedure. Um, when I as do that? As an artist, what, do you, what does it mean? As a gesture, as an artistic gesture. Uh. <laughs> I don't know either. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, we'll go back to that then a little bit later. But in terms of cutting, another very interesting thing that Brian has done in exhibitions is to cut the space of the exhibition. Uh, he has carved into the wall. When you exhibited these works, mm -hmm. or no, when, when did you do the first carved walls? Of which oh, I have no photographs. It's that the was thing. at the Vancouver me. Art Gallery. Vancouver Art Gallery. Yeah. And they were, they were carvings in the wall mm -hmm. based on drawings um, made by people in the street of how they imagined indigenous culture. Yeah, this, that was part of an earlier project that I was doing when I was kind of interested in, in identity and stereotypes. And I was collecting drawings from people on the street and uh, doing these kind of questionnaires or this kind of reverse ethnographic study, asking people in shopping malls to give me, draw me images of native art or native people or Aboriginal art, and I was using different terms. And then taking these collections of uh, images and arranging them on these large color fields, uh, which again was kind of my interest in kind of minimalist painting and those types of uh, aesthetics. Uh, that was kind of a, those were site-specific projects. Of course, they don't exist anymore. They just became painted over after the exhibition was over. So for the Vancouver Art Gallery survey show, we wanted to try to somehow revive that project. So using some of the same images, rather than you know just recreate these wall paintings, I thought it would be interesting to just carve right into the wall, thereby referencing those works, but also exposing the layer of paint in, a gal in, a, in the gallery space. So you could see all these different kind of layers. It was like this kind of small archeological kind of piece. It was like carving in a tree trunk? Tree trunk? Trunk, trunk, yeah. tree. Is it like carving in a tree? Uh, on a massive industrial scale, <laughs> I guess. Is it like carving on, uh, is it like when the tourists carve on a, on a, on a artifact in, or a building in Pompeii and wreck it? Is it like a child? Um, it's similar, I it, think. It's, it's a violent a, impulse. Yeah. <laughs> you were going Perhaps. into psychoanalysis. <laughs> okay, now I'm going to go into my um, <clears throat> main argument here. Okay. Okay, the, the, the main argument. Now, here we go. Okay, here we go. So now, you've been doing this since 1998, 1999, up to 2009. There's 10 years of sculptural works with objects, cutting them, violently recomposing them. Okay. Now, what if we were to look at it from this point of view? What if we're reversing, ironically, the irony of the, let's say, Euro European gaze on the objects that other cultures made mm. and that were 
criticized as being fetish. So this is something that is touched on also by Candice and I was reading the text and I thought about it and I, and I remembered that well, well before Marx and his analysis of the fetish was the Portuguese explorers. And the Portuguese explorers in the colonies, they used the word factitious, facticius, which is not factus. Factus is a product, something that is made. Facticius is something that is made, but it seems to be false. That is, it, has, it is looked upon as something false from the point of view, perhaps, of a monotheistic religion, uh, for, for example, maybe, for a European Catholic religion, uh, looking at these objects which have substance. To be a factitious, you have to have substance, you have to have matter, a material consistency. And the factitious, the fetish, was seen as a sign of backwardness, a sign of um, something false, a false idol, like eidolo, what the Greeks called eidolo, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, adoration of these too in, over-invested into material substances. Then you have Marx with his theory of um, the fetish in the 1860s in the capital, and he says that in the consumer, in, in, in what was then the beginning of the, of the capitalist society, he says that objects were losing their value, their use value, they were losing what they were made to be. For example, water is made to, uh, this thing is made to give us some water to drink. And when they became uh, objects of exchange, and more importantly, objects of exchange than objects of use, they turned into merce, the commodity. And they would lose those original values and they became irrational, crazy objects. That objects, the value of which had nothing to do with the use value of those things. Mm -hmm. It was the pleasure of having that thing that was worth so much that made it valuable in this exchange system of commodities mm -hmm. and the fetish. But what if and then when, of course, after Marx, there was, uh, what's his name, Freud, and then Abraham, especially Abraham, talking about the fetish from a male perspective. Now, I don't have many opinions on that, because not being a male, I can't quite understand the fetish of the foot. I can't understand it according to the Freud reading of it. But without going into that area of Abraham and so on, and sticking with the Marxian reading, there was Adorno. And Adorno, in 1936 or so, more or less, writes his first text about um, the fetish character of music and popular music uh, and the beginnings of looking at the culture industry and seeing it again as a form of intellectual regression where popular music was a lie because its harmony was hiding the violence of the society of the fetish. So what if Brian Jungen is trying to do the same thing, or let's say revealing that same fetishistic attitude in those who considered the fetishes, the mask as a fetish? And indeed, if you look at uh, the way that we could have made fun of those idols of primitive cultures as ex excess and the over-invested desire into them, then what happens to 
your objects when you make them? Are they not exactly in the museum? And are they not revealing what goes on in our museums, in our exhibitions, in our galleries all the time? I mean, is there not an irrational overinvestment into any object of contemporary art that's put into a Sotheby's auction or the crazy million dollar, uh, you know, what? Catalan or Damien Hirst or, or whatever? So, what if what you're doing is simply uh, creating a stage? What if the artwork is not in the object, basically? What if your art is not in those masks? It's not the mask, but it's in the situation. What if it's a situation artwork? A, a situ where you're staging a play, and those are the props of a stage, and the stage where the player and the players are the people in the exhibition who are playing out the artwork, which is the experience of this crazy, absurd, fetishistic society that you are looking at from a Martian perspective. <laughs> well. <laughs> That's the argument. <laughs> I, it's funny because I was, case, I, was, I was... In which case it would be diabolic. <laughs> perhaps. But when I was installing the show at the NMAI, I was remarking how it's a very unusual gallery space and to me it had a feeling of a stage or some sort of environment where because of the other permanent exhibitions are very narrative and there's a very direct way of like explaining the story of the Native American experience to the public the temporary exhibi contemporary exhibitions gallery is, is very different that way, but it also has an exposed ceiling, lighting tracks, and everything that is just, a bit, to me, is very different from a lot of the other museums I've exhibited in, which are fine art museums, where everything is tried to, tried to be kind of invisible, just neutral as possible. So working on this exhibition, I really kind of started thinking about it as a stage or as some sort of like, you know, props in some sort of strange narrative or and uh, I think my work has offered some sort of critique to at least the the context of Native, Native American art in museums and it's being removed from some sort of ceremonial purpose ritual or specific tradition um, yeah but so. it's also you're also revealing the ceremonial nature of this thing called the art exhibition of contemporary art. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and also of basketball, basketball and of sports culture. Exactly. Okay, basketball. <laughs> basketball. Okay. But this would be the, the biggest, um, let's say, way of looking at the difference between your use of critiquing the stereotype of representation of traditional arts and, say, Jimmy Durham's way of doing uh, that critique because yours suggests the fetish Jimmy's never suggests the fetish, never he's, he's the messiness and the texts and the dirtiness of certain elements bring him into the history of the assemblage in a whole different a different way of, of critique it's a, it, it doesn't go through the question of the fetish really? Yeah. I mean, how can you fetishize a Jimmy Durham? It's dirty, 
It's messy. But it's the gesture that's fetishized, perhaps. No, he's talking about a, a stereotypization, but, well, I mean, it depends on the desire systems uh, that one has. I, I mean, you desire all that messy stuff? I don't, but maybe someone else That's does. That's true. But, uh, okay, so then I'm, I'm maybe wrong. Maybe also <laughs> Jimmy Durham is working on the question of the fetish. But I don't know. I think we have to make a phone call. But yeah. <laughs> he's in Italy, actually. I think, but okay, I'm going to move to the next thing because uh, otherwise the co we'll go into this too long. What we see here is a wonderful story. Many, many stories to tell about this. Many stories. You see uh, the piece in its original context, the piece that has found a home here in Washington and makes me so happy that it has found a home uh, more than anyone can imagine. So this piece, Crux, uh, was in its home here, and this place is a room uh, where workers, uh, forced laborers, pr prisoners, uh, would work. It's one of the oldest buildings on Cockatoo Island in Sydney Harbor, which had a, um, a pr prison on it, uh, br British prison. And you chose this space, and you built those stairs at the back with Titus. Titus Hardy, yeah. So that we people could have a view out of the window onto the beautiful harbor, a view that um, the people who are working in there didn't have, for example. Yeah. And also a better view, a little bit higher, one meter closer to the stars, <laughs> uh, which is a title of a piece by an arte povera artist, actually, Giovanni Anselmo, to be one meter closer to the stars. And you built this this mobile, and there are so many things to, to tell about it. The first is maybe that it was part of an exhibition called Revolutions, Forms That Turn, which was exploring the formal articulations embedded in the etymology of the word revolution. So volvere to turn and revolvere to turn again. So you're actually in the same place. But can one imagine a spiral where one turns and turns but isn't in the same space? How does one imagine how the world might be. Um, do you want to tell the story about this piece which happened on this island? Well, uh, yes. There it is, Cockatoo Island. Um, when you invited me out to Australia initially, you had just secured this place as a venue. So I was one of the first artists to see it in all its rawness and thought it would be fantastic to do a site-specific piece using the materials that I could gather from the island. So I returned a few months later with a friend, Titus, to make uh, installation here. And we decided that we would actually stay on the island because there was a very unreliable ferry system. And the Harbor Trust, which runs the island, had just opened this campground, which was campground. essentially a soccer field. A campground. Yeah, this is the campground. This is an advertisement for camping on Cockatoo Island. But you camped before anybody else. You were the first people we to camp. We were the first people camping. It's like gentrification, you know, the artists come in and gentrify. But, exactly. <laughs> but we weren't the first people there. There was also a Hollywood film production crew there. Yes, there was a Hollywood film production crew. Uh, who was uh, 
they were shooting the film <laughs> Wolverine. <laughs> Jack, whatever his name is. Yeah. Wolverine 3. So we had to kick them out in order to do the Biennale. Yeah, because they had a much bigger crew. And a much bigger I had bigger a crew budget. of one. And so <laughs> they were filming this film in the exhibition room, the area where I was going to build this piece. So <laughs> I had to patiently wait while they went over budget and beyond the schedule until I could get access to the space. And in that time, um, it was very difficult to get on and off this island, so I decided to try to find a boat to get across, and after trying to find something in Sydney, Greater Sydney on Craigslist, it was very um, difficult. And However, so we found a really beautiful rowboat. No, you didn't find it in Sydney. No. I lied, and then you found it. In Queensland. <laughs> yes, because I'm going to tell the story because Brian couldn't find the right rowboat, and the rowboat was essential because without a rowboat, he couldn't go back and forth between the downtown of Sydney and the island, and couldn't therefore sleep on the island and couldn't do his shopping, and this would have made making the art project impossible. So, 90% of my time as a curator is occupied with making it possible, making a situation where it's possible. And then he found a rowboat on the internet in Queensland and never looked at a map and, asked, and had to go pick it up, renting it with rented truck because you can't fly and pick up a rowboat. So he said to me, well, how long a drive is it, Carolyn? And I said, well, a couple of hours. So he rented the truck and came back a week later with a rowboat and said, you lied. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got our boat and got, got to see the countryside. And it was actually an amazing little trip because it really it brought, brought me out of the city and I saw the countryside and started reading about a lot of the uh, Aboriginal culture there as well, where including um, astrology, or astronomy, sorry. Uh, because... I didn't recognize the night sky because I was in the southern hemisphere. So it really was, like I say, a lot of things are left up to chance when I go to an exhibition place to make an a exhibition. And um, so if it wasn't for Wolverine and Hugh Jackman, I may have never have no, arrived at this piece. Yeah. Which, at the time, I, did, I couldn't really see that. I just was very frustrated. I couldn't get access to the exhibition space. But it meant it, it, it started something because after he decided to camp on the island and not stay at the hotel in Sydney, then the um, Norwegian artists also said they wanted to camp and not stay at the hotel. And then the, uh, I don't know, artists from some other area that was rather extreme decided to also camp and not and it became a competition about who can camp on the island and every day I was saving more and more money from the hotels because they were all camping and, um, but that has something to do with, with the work I think it had to do with the spirit of, the, of that Biennale yeah for sure with, and the, and the piece is about looking at the stars also and looking at the stars at night and the possibility of being on a level 
and a point of view that's not necessarily the one that you're normally in when you're in an art exhibition traveling around the world. Yeah, definitely. And the relations that came out of that, I think, were important with the different artists. Mm -hmm. The artists who were staying on Cockatoo really kind of had to kind of share resources and, you know, kind of band together at certain times because the conditions weren't ideal. It was very raw space, so um, everything managed to happen. So that was amazing. But I think what Cockatoo meant also, at least for, for, for me, but maybe also for the visitors of the exhibition, was that it was possible that there was a space with no stores, no shopping, no cars, no advertisements. There was nothing on the island except that it had everything. It was because it had been um, a prison and then it had been a shipyard uh, all of the military ships of Australia were built there until the 80s. Mm -hmm. And so it had, at a certain point, it had been also a, a mental institution for wayward girls, which is a word that I learned in Australia, wayward girls. And then it, it, so it went through all these layers and layers of pain, uh, probably was at a certain point a very highly populated island in the, in the harbor because of all the um, uh, good fishing there and the oysters and then became a layering of what Michel Foucault would find a kind of a, a textbook example of all the possible forms of repression. Uh, crime and punishment. Crime and punishment, a sexual repression. Uh, it was also, it, it has become some sort of open-air museum because of that, but it's, it's kind of struggle for, I think, the city of Sydney to try to touch on all of this stuff with their exhibitions there. And it was very strange that they would try to make a campground on this island with all of this, you know, heavy history. And so while I was staying there, while Titus and I were staying there, we got to kind of experience, you know, wildlife as well because they're the only real inhabitants of the place are these violent seagulls and fruit bats and rats and stuff. So it was, it was an incredible sense of isolation in the middle of the city, which I think is the kind of the real yeah. testament to the place. That's it. That you can find in the, you can find anywhere inside of yourself. You can find that space. Uh, <laughs> and what are these materials? Well, the island itself was on the you know, flight path of Sydney International Airport, so every few minutes another massive jet would be landing right over, and it passed right over the island. So strangely, we started to be able to tell what time of day it was because of the different airline coming in, because there was only usually one a day. And that got me kind of thinking about this incredible trip that people have to take to get to Australia. And it's, it's really this overwhelming trip. And it made me recall once when I had flew to New York and I lost, my bags were lost, and I, had, I was in New York for a week with nothing. And it was actually kind of liberating. So I wanted to somehow use, reference this sense of travel. And so I used uh, luggage 
So originally, Brian wanted to find, wanted to buy from Qantas Airlines all of the lost luggage that it, people don't claim, which is collected in Brisbane again. I think it's collected from all over the world. There's a company there that um, buys the, 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 the suspended losses of globalized travel. Yeah, in, are they from Asia mostly in Australia? From Asia yeah. to Australia. There's another one in the U.S. that does that too. It's the strangest thing that someday someone will open up all these suitcases, thousands and thousands of lives of people in Brisbane or in this place in, in the U.S. So the, the original plan was to use these lost luggage, these suspended people um, huddled around the world. Yeah, but once but I, it didn't work. No, it didn't work out. The airlines realized that this really wasn't the best publicity for them. <laughs> so I used some, I managed to get some lost luggage, and, but I did mainly used uh, brand new stuff, which I use that all the time. Uh, I buy my materials. So that wasn't nothing new, but it was, again, difficult to getting this stuff on the island. So I'm glad we had the boat. And the animals are animals that refer to what? Well, I was looking at all the, uh, reading about Aboriginal Australian uh, constellations. And one thing, remarkable thing that I read was that they actually don't outline the, their constellations the same way. It's rather the negative space between the stars that is more that is more forms the kind of shape of the animals. So these are the five most common animals in uh, Aboriginal constellations: uh, emu, uh, eagle, a possum, a crocodile, and a shark. So I took those as a kind of starting point for this piece. Yeah, uh, but one thing that people don't write about, I noticed in the texts about this piece. <clears throat> is the relationship with Alexander Calder. I mean, you, you were looking at that because I was including um, Big Red from the Whitney collection and another um, Roxbury Fleury, uh, again from the Whitney, were in the Sydney Biennale, mm. and they were in the museum just opposite where this was located. And we talked a lot about Calder and about the, the mobile and what that meant in the history of 20th century art. Yeah, I, 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 wanted, I wanted to somehow... <laughs> initially, I, was, I thought I had permission to use a lot of the materials from the island itself. Um, unfortunately, that really wasn't the case when I arrived there because this is all kind of heritage material. So it, it became another thing when I started to look at other materials. Um, I did, I've always been a big fan of Alexander Calder, so I wanted to try to make some sort of mobile and was trying to th think of how I could make some sort of relationship with the work that you were bringing but in. Why so. a fan? I mean, we, we, we had Gordon Matta Clark a minute ago, and now we have Calder. Not much in common, or, or is there something? Well, I get maybe it's just the actual technology that he kind of invented and created, Calder. Of like suspending and balancing and hanging things. And again, I mean, I'm more interested in actual art itself rather than 
you know, a whole body of an artist's work. It's very rare that I can sit down and say, oh, I really love, you know, everything this artist has ever made. So, um, we had a discussion around Calder when we were in Sydney. Yeah, we did. So, and yeah. it's interesting now that this piece is here because at the National Gallery, the East Wing, which is directly across from the National Museum of American Indian, is a gigantic Calder sculpture in their atrium. So there's this funny sort of relationship now. But is it a relationship with, again, a kind of anarchist almost spirit or a spirit of radical uh, play as a non-productive activity in the society? Is it... Um, I, I mean, Calder loved going to Rio. He would get lost during the... His wife would have to call the American embassy in Rio to look for him because he was lost during the carnival. So there are aspects to Calder that are not always um, underlined when looking only at the formal aspect. Yeah, I, I think... Uh, um, Maybe. Well, I got kind of lost in Sydney too, so... Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't have anyone to go and okay. find me. But I like this picture a lot. I got this off the internet. It's just a really bad, blurred, stolen picture of the piece because, of course, people weren't supposed to take photographs and all that. And I love the way that these things do happen and these terrible photographs get get onto the net and um, they remind me a little bit of Brian's practice actually you know the way that you um, blur things and patch things together and steal things I guess the pleasure of this activity that is so characteristic of how knowledge is constructed today um, maybe we go to the next Ah, this is another photograph I found on the internet and I think it has something to do with the show here because I think it's in Washington. Yeah. <laughs> well, when the piece came back from Australia, there was a lot of things that had to be kind of fixed from the <coughs> shipment. But did you know this was up on the internet? Yeah, I did. This uh -huh. was that's me and Robert who works at NMAI working on the piece in the shop at the museum. And this was, I think, taken by Anne Gunnison, who works in conservation, who was following this kind of restoration and including it on a blog, which was uh, part of the kind of education of the, uh, at the NMAI, so. Yeah, a fantastic um, mobile on the ground with its feet on the ground. The mobile was really meant in Sydney, it was hung very much lower, so there was more of an interaction that people could experience with the, these animals. And uh, um, to me, for me, it's, it's kind of important that the people who see the work will have some sort of personal or some, some sort of visual relationship to the material. So it's nice for them to kind of get up close to it and Do see that. Do you think that. artworks die when they go into the contemporary art? museum or the gallery or the collection? Do they well, die? for me, I like artwork is alive when it's being made and when, and then it's, to me, I just kind of launch it into the world and it 
will then have you know a life of its own, and it'll have endless interpretations. And I, that's something I can't control. I mean, it's it's yeah. it's just kind but, of. But at the well, same time, if there isn't that dead body, there's nothing to. Uh, someone told me an artist once said that museums are cemeteries, and that the fact that we don't like them has to do with our fear of death and our not inability to recognize a death in our society. And then I said, well, what's the contemporary art museum? And he said it was the garden outside the cemetery. <laughs> Which is, again, a sort of interzone where it's a strange paradox, the, the, this zone between this moment mm -hmm. and the moment when you're gone. It's, it's a strange zone. And what are these? Well, these are drawings I made for the Biennale of Sydney catalog. Uh, some of the ideas I had for the Biennale involved these fruit bats that I could see in downtown Sydney and Cockatoo Island. So I was started to investigate them. I do a lot of kind of drawings and a lot of uh, references to animal and animal forms. But why? Except a, why a closed and then an open? What does it mean? Oh, there are a series of a whole series of those, and I just um, I like those two the most. <laughs> so those are the ones okay. I sent to you. And this. So this is what brought Brian's work to notoriety, as one would say. Uh, Shapeshifter was shown in Vancouver in 2000. I think after that, his work started to get looked at by curators and younger curators, I have to say, and. Um, people who, who were really fascinated by the, a piece that looks from a distance like something in a museum, again, rather cemeterial <laughs> situation. Uh, and then af after a few moments of looking at this skeleton of some distant and ancient animal, uh, one notices that it's made out of plastic chairs, cheap plastic chairs for gardens. He made three works like this, no? Yeah, they were all made in the gallery spaces of the exhibitions, the museums that were exhibiting them. So it's kind of, I started... Why did you make this? I mean, what, what was the impulse? How did it happen? You woke up one morning and said, we're going to cut up all these garden chairs <laughs> and make it. In a way, I mean, I was interested in this, in just the kind of formal quality of the chairs for quite a while. Uh, and I wanted to kind of try to make something, but I wasn't quite sure what the material or, um, would, would do. So really it was kind of these formal investigations into using the chair for different pieces. So I made some sort of st some structures initially in these large domes and these kind of mm -hmm. um, habitats. And... Uh, was not quite, didn't have a kind of, of resolve for the material or a real sense or feeling for it. So I uh, was spending some time in Vancouver at the Vancouver Aquarium videotaping people interacting with the exhibits, photographing it. And that kind of sparked an interest in the whaling industry in the Pacific. So that led me to uh, researching uh, those histories, both European and uh, First Nations, and 
by chance I was given the opportunity to work in the Ore Gallery for a month. So it, was, it all kind of came together in the space. So a lot of the t I can't, it's difficult to kind of elaborate on how works are made. I mean, I think there's things in art, in art production, that words can't really be applied to. So these things just arrived from an, uh, formal investigations in materials but at initially, a, but at, at a certain point, sort of point, it's just a matter of trial and error and working things out, and I think that's how I tend to work. A lot of people assume that this work is kind of mapped out on computers or drawn with an engineer, but I don't have a sense of working two-dimensionally and try to change that into something three-dimensional. So for me, it's something that I have to do work out you know, so in three-dimensional. It's not models. Again, to go back to the whole point of the exhibition, The Moderns, which was about the fact that one can also start not from the model, that one can also start from the thing itself. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> which might be uh, very useful in the future when we live again maybe with 10,000 watts a day instead of hundreds of thousands, right. maybe. And this piece is in the exhibition here. Do you want to describe it? Or? Yeah, this piece was made for a, a specific installation at the uh, Prison Museum of Canada. So I was invited to make some sort of intervention, some installation. This correctional museum in Kingston, Ontario. And uh, so I was given a tour of this small museum. It's very kind of safe, little displays of the history of incarceration in Canada. And at the same time, I was given the opportunity to tour the Kingston Penitentiary, which is a very old penitentiary. And it's, it's not every day that you get to have a tour of a maximum security prison. So I went along with a bunch of guards, and I got to tour a cell block that all the inmates were, weren't, in, weren't there. But one of the things I really was kind of struck by was how uh, incredibly uh, isolated there was no, all the windows were um, glazed over and the only kind of uh, measure of the pa passing of time were these small televisions and that was really the only window to the outside world and it was like this kind of reward or this privilege that prisoners could earn through working. So I wanted to try to bring that, the sense of that into the, into the museum, which was across the street, which uh, didn't have anything, any sort of sense of that in its, in its displays. But they did have this amazing artifact of a, a prison had created this stack of trays over time and hollowed them out and tried to escape in it. And I felt this uh, real kind of... <laughs> alliance with this prisoner because I think we both look at materials the same way. He so cut. He cut. He cut, he cut it he out. Cut. Yeah. Cut. Yeah. So <laughs> this piece has a very specific relationship to that prisoner's piece and to that context. So I wanted to use the same materials but I wanted to do it as, you know, I didn't want to just simply cut them up. Um, so I based this on statistics, really. So each tray represents a native 
First Nations male inmate in prison during the time of my exhibition. So they're kind of like these graphs in a way, and each color represents the length of sentence. And all this was kind of like uh, explained in the installation. And inside of the inside of the stack exists a television that's just you know playing broadcast television. Um, and it really, again, was going my direct, this kind of, you know, hobbyist interest I have in minimalist aesthetics. Uh, I kind of have always gone in kind of two different directions, this in intensely kind of handheld, handmade, uh, uh, figurative, if you will, direction. And then this, the kind of, aesthetics of uh, minimalism which have always really appealed to me so that's the kind of background for this piece which outside of the prison museum doesn't have those specific references and functions as this you know pretty stack of trays this was the piece that was shown also in Kwangju but first that triple candy in New York mm -hmm. uh, Often I'm given opportunities to work in kind of unusual spaces like the prison museum. And this, this place was this uh, artist-run center in Harlem, which was, had just started up. And they were operating in a, this former industrial space, which had, was once a brewery, it was once a warehouse, and it was, upstairs was once a textile garment factory. So I wanted to somehow reference this history in this space. These are sewing machine tables from um, like a sweatshop type situation. Yeah, yeah. So I was able to locate these tables that were used, that were kind of refurbished uh, tables from factories and pushed them all together and painted basketball lines <laughs> on them. Um, it, again, referencing Harlem and its history where a lot of... Uh, uh, b basketball is very important to the culture there and especially the kind of heroes that have come out of there have kind of left the you know ghetto if you will through the medium of sports and and again recycling something that is connected to sub let's call it subjugation like yeah. the tray in the prison mm -hmm. into something uh, that is a tool of freedom but this reminds me of surrealist strategies. And I remember Magritte in his writings, I think in the late 50s, he wrote once, you know, you can do anything with the body of someone, but you cannot colonize the mind, never. And so my paintings are that, that's what they are. It's a beautiful mm -hmm. uh, explanation of Magritte from the point of view of his, of the, the politics of form. <laughs> one might say. Mm. And this has a surrealist, Magritian aspect to it Yeah, as definitely. Well. I mean, it's something that you could, you would recognize, but there's no way that you could actually use this as a basketball court. Well, so. you can't use a Magritte painting either. Exactly. <laughs> um, but there's a kind of visual similarity, I guess. Yeah, and then the sewing machine is, of course, the Lautréamont, one of the two elements of the poem about the umbrella. So this is, uh, we have to move very quickly now because we need 15 minutes for the audience and that means almost right away. Should we skip it and go to the red flag? 
there's not time for both. I like this piece. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> Okay. This, this piece doesn't exist anymore, so it's interesting to kind of yeah. talk about it. And uh, I was invited to do a show in Montreal uh, in 2005 at another industrial, former industrial space that has become an exhibition space. In this space, um, the Darling Foundry was located near uh, Moji Safdie's Habitat 67 apartment complex, which was kind of experiment in mass housing uh, featured in Expo 67 and was supposed to be this kind of utopian solution for uh, urban sprawl. However, it just became like an architectural achievement and this kind of iconic destination in this kind of, it became expensive condominiums. So I wanted to kind of play on its form uh, and also I wanted to work I have this kind of ongoing fascination with the kind of habitats that humans build for animals. And uh, so I decided to work with the Montreal SPCA and create some, another kind of... SPCA, Society for the Protection of Animals. Pre yeah, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. A society for the pre Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. So I wanted to change the kind of function of the gallery for my exhibition and turn it into like a, a satellite for the Montreal SPCA. So I built this habitat for them so they could use it as a cat adoption center during, my, during the exhibition. And then it would, be, it would function not as an exhibition but as an SPCA location. Um, so so I, people could come and adopt cats from the... Yeah. From the artwork. Yeah. And the cats lived here in this like model of the safety. And I used, uh, based it also on the kind of this bizarre cat furniture that you'd find in like uh, pet shop stores and stuff. And it really was, it was kind of an experiment to see if an exhibition space would be willing to do this and like not treat the exhibition as an exhibition, but as an actual... A functional... Thing. Yeah, in the same yeah. way that... The, the, there were supposed the, to be dogs there, too. Yeah, that didn't work out. Didn't work out. <laughs> um, it's interesting to note that when the um, Armenian massacres occurred, in, in the, the, the Turks um, killed the dogs in Istanbul. There were really? many dogs in Istanbul. The Ottoman Empire and... Historically, there were dogs like there were cats in Rome, like there are cats. Mm -hmm. And there's a coincidence between those two uh, attitudes or events. Yeah, lots of relations. <laughs> so we can't speak about the bats, which are different bats than the other bats, but they still bat, and they're related to strikes, and the strikes are related to this, mm -hmm. which is the red flag. This is quick because we have to end. Red Flag was done in London for the Tate. Jessica Morgan invited Brian over and you sewed together this pieces of plastic and clothes and things um, to make this huge red flag, which was inspired by the song which was used by the Labour Party until Blair had it removed. Had it removed. And uh, the song was written by an Irishman James Connell, yes. Right near Bonus, the Tate. Yeah, Waterloo Station. Waterloo yeah. Station, right near the Tate. And I think 
The strangest thing about this song is that it's just like a Brian Newman, in the sense that if you sing it, it's usually sung to Otanenbaum. So there's this absurdity of this total popular culture tune coming from the German Tannenbaum and, and a song about revolution. And nobody is able to explain to me why in the world it is sung to that tune. So, the people's flag is deepest red, they crowded <laughs> off our martyred dead. It's the most crazy thing, <laughs> like the Nike shoes. And the, so on that note, I think we open it up to questions. Anyone else care to sing? <laughs> Very good. before you started working with the Nike shoes that you, you hadn't made anything before and so I wonder what your work was like before that like what, would you, what did you do in art school oh I was mainly drawing and doing uh, uh, some painting uh, mainly two dimensional work so. would we recognize it's it bad I'm sorry would we recognize it, Does it well a lot of it doesn't uh, exist anymore um I shared a studio with a couple peers, uh, Jeffrey Farmer uh, as well, and he was doing a very similar type of drawing. It was very cartoonish and gestural, but a lot of my drawings were just kind of a, a reaction to the, uh, the kind of, we lived in, a, our studio was in a very poor neighborhood and there was a lot of Indian folks who were quite destitute. So my drawings, I, I kind of wheat pasted them up around the neighborhood. And uh, it was kind of a response to that. So they don't really exist other than in photographs. Okay. I have another question, if that's all right. I, um, I know that in Canada, Vancouver especially, there's kind of a, a, a maybe like an anti-consumerist movement, you know, with Ad Busters and Naomi Klein kind of people. And I wondered if you're at all connected to that, or do you see your work related, or do you empathize with that? Uh, I, th I think Vancouver is just like any other city in North America is a massive pro-consumerist attitude <laughs> but I think there's been a the history of Vancouver as a place of kind of anarchism and, and a reaction to uh, you know authority so there's been you know it's, you can see it can be seen through the kind of punk music scene and things like ad busters but I think, I guess, being exposed to that in art school had some sort of effect on my position, but it's, it's um, not something like that I have any contact to the folks at Ad Busters or Naomi Klein, who I think is based out of Toronto, not Vancouver. Maybe the mic will make it seem like a more important observation. Um, I don't know what they call them, but I know that there were a whole lot of toys out there for a while that you could transform the shape of it from a robot into an airplane, maybe into something else. Yeah, transform. I wonder if you played with theirs very much, because it makes me feel like it would have been good practice. Well, I remember those from when I was a kid, but I mean, I... I destroyed my own toys as a kid so it wasn't I was wasn't really did you change change them around and make them into something new uh, not really I just 
destroyed them. <laughs> I think most kids did that, but um, uh, I'm not really sure. Like, I don't think they were an influence for me. I think they, I think they're a great thing for kids now to kind of look, maybe provide some sort of example or some tool for them to look at their environment differently. That brings to my mind one thing that I found on the internet, which is a fake Brian Newman, uh, because he's had influence already onto the world of people faking things. And I will show you now a fake Brian Newman. There it is, on the internet. <laughs> And that's the website that says Brian Young. And I verified it, and it's fake. Yeah, I didn't make it. <laughs> it's nice, though. I kind of wish I did. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about your relationship with animals, I guess, and in, in the process of making your art, uh, namely your dog? Oh, OK. Um, well, as a kid, I lived on our farm. and. I was always exposed to animals and these kind of weird contraptions my dad would make for them. And I was, I've always kind of observed my family environment as a, ki as a kid and I would see how my mom's family, for instance, would reuse materials. And a lot of that was just based on like the economic situation they were in, but always just being around animals growing up and uh, I became interested in that in my kind of interest in architecture as well. So I've read lots about, you know, this kind of zoo architecture and the present, presentation of animals in captivity. And that was really uh, influential for pieces like the piece I did in Montreal. Um, but more recently, I was, uh, I recently got a dog a couple of years ago and he was, He's very rambunctious, but he kept on finding these baseballs when I would go out for walks, and tennis balls as well, but I really liked these baseballs because they were used and they had things written on them by teams and stuff, so I started collecting them and they eventually wound up as an artwork of these baseball skulls, of which one is in the museum. So it's kind of a, a sweet little story. But an animal could actually affect the, uh, or inspire a work like that. This is made out of trash cans, and it looks like an edible tortoise. It's the plastic trash cans. This piece is something I made earlier this year, and like the plastic chairs, it's a material I've been fascinated in for a while, but I haven't, you know, arrived at something that I feel like is the kind of perfect use for it. Uh, so as you see in, in the exhibition at the NMAI, it's changed from its second, from its initial presentation in France, and it will likely change again. So it's a piece that will kind of evolve, like like the uh, plastic chair materials. But it'll be much, it'll be documented much, you know, thoroughly this time. So. enjoy the stories that you've been able to tell us about the background of your pieces and sort of the meaning for you and I wonder if you had control or maybe you do of 
the little captions that go on the wall of the didactic captions, what you would hope that museum, that gallery visitors would get to see, and you talked or would get to read and hear about your works. And especially you talked about the shifting context when you take a work and you display it in Europe versus when you display it in North America, say that it, that the work changes. And if you would want the same caption on the wall or if you would want a different explanation for a different audience. Uh, well, for here I worked with the, the team at the NMAI to create the kind of didactics for the museum and the, the kind of explanation and rationale for some of the work. Um, it, that's always a bit awkward because I'm really interested in all sorts of interpretation of my work, but it really, people kind of expect that in institutions. They want to see, you know, they want some sort of background or some sort of reference for it. So those types of things are pretty standard and they're usually kind of, you know, something I work with the departments in these museums to, you know, write these things. But what we did at the NMAI is you can go through a, do a cell phone tour. So you, at the different, some of the different artworks, you can phone this number and there's a little interview with me explaining to you what it means. So, <laughs> so that's new. Hey, just um, wanted to point out, by the way, that you have three Canadians who are very um, glad to see you speak here, Brian. So. Um, <laughs> I guess my question was, um, you have a lot of works that are um, uh, referencing animal parts like uh, carapace and your sort of um, bone uh, chair skeleton things. And I guess there's sort of a, I see this contradiction in terms of the material being used and the object being represent, represented, like uh, plastics are generally very harmful to animals and the sort of production of plastics and also with the Native American masks, I mean, there are these very spiritual objects being represented with Nike shoes, which are hardly a symbol of sort of spiritual um, awareness. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could speak about... Um, the contradiction? Your, your, yeah, the contradiction yeah. in the use of materials. And I, I guess I'm interested in, in your opinion on plastics and, and Nike shoes. And I, it's kind of related to the first woman's question. So. Well, there are, there are connections in some ways. I mean, you can always find some sort of uh, thread between things, but I'm I was really interested in using mass-produced materials that people had some sort of relationship to and changing it enough that they wouldn't at first recognize what the material is. They would first see the kind of artifact or the object or what it's become, and then it would kind of flip, change as they notice what the, what the material was made out of. And there's some sort of like, uh, it's difficult to kind of explain what that shift is when you kind of look at, when you look at artwork. Um, but I think it has to do with the kind of, uh, kind of life that the work has. And that to me, that's really important that work kind of has that sort of spark or whatnot. Um, but in terms of like the museum, this is something that Carolyn was saying is that the objects, people, a lot of the artwork I'm making is in relationship, like the, the in relationship to museums, 
for instance, a lot of people, they only see Native American masks in museums. They don't see them involved in their, you know, their community and their ceremony. So they either see them there or they see them in mass produced in catalogs and books and whatnot. So it's, it's always within the frame of this kind of institution or authority or museum. So that location of that was really important for me in, in the presentation of my work. In the, for instance, the Nike trainer masks in glass cases, it was, I wanted it to read that way. So the, the glass cases is very, is very much a part of the piece. So um, people can understand that this, this is a kind of framing of something that's, that was ceremonial, that's no longer ceremonial. And there's also, a, I'm interested in sports culture because it, it functions as a, as a kind of contemporary ceremony in, within society. So, like the Air Jordan trainers are, are uh, kind of un, unusual for a, for a trainer to be that expensive and that collectible. And it has its own history within sports culture and popular culture that's kind of elevated it to this, you know, fetishized collectible which is very similar to the, how the masks exist as well. 